Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Changes. My name is Annie McManus. I want to cut straight to the point this week. If you follow the news or scroll through social media, you will have heard a lot about something that is often referred to as the migrant crisis. You will have heard that tens of thousands of migrants arrive on the shores of the UK each year looking for asylum. You will have heard about Pretty Patel's plans to deter those migrants by fiercely guarding the UK's coasts and turning away small boats overfilled with desperate people and by creating so-called offshore processing centres where migrants will be held indefinitely while their applications are dealt with. The issue of the migrant crisis and Britain's responsibility towards those seeking asylum is of course a divisive one, but something that often gets lost in the rhetoric, in the policies, in the statistics is the reality of the people at the very heart of the crisis, the ones who are living it rather than commentating on it. So on this episode of Changes, that is what we are zeroing in on. The experiences of one man who made that treacherous journey and can tell you exactly what it's like to fight for a place in the world to call home. Hassan Akkad has lived too many lives for me to summarise here. The Sparknotes version is this. Hassan was born and raised in Syria. During the protests of the Arab Spring, he was arrested and imprisoned without trial. While he was held, he was subjected to horrendous abuse, physical, psychological and sexual, at the hands of his captors. After which he knew he had to leave his home country and that he would never be able to return. His journey to the UK began in Turkey on a rubber dinghy and ended at Heathrow nearly three months later. What happened in the middle changed him. Of course, Hassan is more than just an asylum seeker. He is a teacher, a filmmaker, an activist and now an author. His memoir, Hope Not Fear, was released earlier this month. It is filled with passion, pain and sadness for the changes that the world forced onto him. But, like the title says, it is full of hope, full of resilience. That resilience and a fundamental belief that the world can be good is what motivates so many of Hassan's actions. It's what led him to make an unbelievable real-world difference in the early stage of the pandemic, which you'll hear him talking about later. But I wanted to start with Hassan's world before all the upheaval that was thrust upon him. So I asked him about Damascus, Syria, and all the things he misses about home. Enter the podcast, Hassan Akkad. I miss my family so much. It's been since 2012, since we were all under the, the same roof. And I had, a, I had an incredible upbringing back in Damascus. I come from a very middle-class family. My dad had a pizza restaurant. Uh, I think he made the best pizza in Damascus. I'm not being biased, but it was really good. Everyone, everyone loved it. <laughs> I have three sisters and a brother. We lived in a really nice neighborhood in Damascus. We were very privileged. We had like three cars. We used to have a farm where we would go for serans. And I had loads of friends, like 
<laughs> dozens and dozens of friends. I was never bored because every time I hit someone up, or even if I just go for a stroll in Damascus, I would run into dozens of people who I know, either from school or work. And we didn't have the privilege of traveling. So I, could, I didn't, when I lived in Damascus, I didn't really see anywhere else except for Beirut, where, where we would go for road trips. But it was still, it was still pretty in its simplicity. Like it was, it was still nice. You know, I, 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 I never wanted to leave. I, I was very content in, in living there. My brother and I, we technically learned English from watching films. So we would watch films almost every day. And I used to be a, a very good runner. I used to, <laughs> I used to, running around Damascus made me memorize the roads. Like I can literally navigate my, my, myself around the city without like eyes closed. And yeah, it was, it was great. It was beautiful. <laughs> what would you say is the biggest change that you went through in your childhood? Well, two of the biggest changes I think that I went through in my childhood were moving houses. So when we moved, we used to live in a very small apartment and I shared the bedroom with all my siblings. And then when we moved to the apartment where, which we still have, I had my own room with my brother and I could put posters out and I can like, like I had my own space, which gave me, you know, agency and autonomy. And I feel like I, I, I ran the space, it's mine. And when I was in my late teens, another big change happened is, is when I became a teacher that mm. like drastically changed my life because I it turned me from being, I was a really annoying teenager. I was, uh, <laughs> I, I was, I always got myself in trouble and <laughs> my, I drove my parents crazy. But when I became a te I became a teacher at a very young age, like when I was 18, 19, it changed my way or it changed my, it changed my vision of life and it, it gave me responsibility. And I, I think I started to become better as a person in terms of my views and in terms of who I was. And you were teaching English, right? I taught English, yes. I taught English at this private school on the outskirts of Damascus. And I loved it. Like, I loved teaching. Uh, most of the students were siblings of, like, my friend's siblings or, like, some of our neighbors. And I, we would go all in the bus and go to school and, and come back. And, and uh, I was really good at it. And I really miss, I mean, I, I, I miss being in a classroom and, you know, teaching and, and inspiring and doing cool things. <laughs> so, I mean, life, the picture of life then was very content. You know, you had, you didn't have money worries. You had your family all around you. You had a good job. You're making money quite early, quite young, you know, as a young adult. So tell me then about the protests and, and, First of all, for the people who don't understand what the backdrop of this was, would you mind giving us a little kind of context as to what the protests were? Well, on the surface, Damascus looks great or Syria looks great, you know, like everyone did all right, you know. At some point, Syria was getting more tourists than Australia. So things were generally fine, you know, like people had jobs, we, we had, we, everyone was content, but we still lived in a dictatorship. You know, Syria has been under the Assad dynasty for like 40, over 40 years now, where, you know, human rights don't exist. I didn't know what my rights were as a person when I lived in Syria. And uh, there is one political party that runs the country. Um, if you make a joke about the government or about the regime, you end up in prison. So it's a state of repression. It's a police state where you have to get a police permission if you even want to throw a wedding. 
obviously the Arab Spring happened into like in, in started in Tunisia and young people like myself were hooked to the screens watching these protests erupt in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Libya, and uh, naturally it was going to happen in Syria because people wanted the end of martial laws. Uh, they wanted some like political diversity. They wanted some. They just wanted to, you know, live a life away from fear and repression. And how it basically started is that a group of kids in Daraa, in, in a city in the south of Syria, obviously from obsessively watching the news and, and, and reading on the internet, they memorized the slogan of the Arab Spring, which was people want the downfall of the regime. And they scribbled these words on the wall of their school and they got arrested by the secret police. They were tortured and their fingernails were, were removed and, you know, they're 11 years old kids. And that, what st- that ignited the protests in Daraa. People protested, they were met with bullets and eventually these protests start like, you know, from, moved from Daraa to Damascus to Homs to Aleppo to all over Syria. And I was watching all of that with such fascination and being like, I can't believe this is happening because you're living in a state of fear where we can't even say anything on the phone because we, we felt like we're being monitored the whole time. So when this has happened, we had these, this, some sort of identity crisis and we were like, oh my God, what do we do? And uh, myself and millions of other Syrians, you know, took to the streets and started protesting too. And you detail this very graphically in the book and you can feel the kind of danger and that kind of atmosphere of, of total tension and peril. Um, how did you come to be arrested? Well, as I explained to you earlier, thousands of people took the streets and in the cities, the longest, pro- they were like flash mobs. They were like, the longest protest was like five or 10 minutes and then the secret police would start coming from everywhere. And then people would disperse. Yes. So that's what young people started doing. Everyone started joining protests and they were organized online on Facebook. So there were these groups where people joined anonymously so they can know where the protests are and they can join them. And tens of thousands of Syrians started doing that, including myself, although I did it in, without telling my parents because my, my mom and dad are very, very protective of us. And they, they know what the, the regime is capable of doing. You know, it's not like protesting in London where you can go to 10 Downing Street and say like, oh, like... The prime minister is this and nothing yeah. happens. <laughs> Syria is very different. <laughs> so so I, jo- I joined the protests and I, I utilized my skills as a photographer, as, a, as someone who can operate a camera. And I started filming the protests and sending them to news channels. And I, I felt like I was doing something. You know, I joined this movement which wanted nothing but, you know, freedom. And, and, and they wanted this police state to change. And they didn't, like, in, in, in the early days, people weren't asking for the failure, like, for the downfall of their regime. They just wanted some change. They just wanted some change to these laws. So I joined the protests and, and started going every week until I, I got arrested at one. It was Ramadan. It was right after the prayer. And the reason why people would protest after prayers is because we could, it's not because it was an Islamist movement back then, but because we could go to mosques and we can congregate in mosques. That's why when we right. leave the mosque, we could protest. It was like a meeting point. And yeah, I got arrested. I always thought that I'm never going to get arrested because I could outrun the the police. And you know that feeling when you're never like, oh, that's never going to happen to me. Yeah, yeah. It's like that young, invincible feeling. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I'll be fine. Yeah, Yeah, but but then it did happen to me, unfortunately. And uh, that day changed my life forever. Because I got beaten up very badly 
on the spot when we got arrested. It was like a group of us. I got beaten up very badly and then like really, really badly, which they broke some of my limbs. And then we got, we got thrown in detention and we got beaten up even more and more and more. And I could see the extent of the violence and of the terror that these people are capable of. And I ended up in detention for two weeks. And then because, because I'm privileged, because I have connection, I was released, which is not really good for my survival's guilt right now. <laughs> but <laughs> I got released after two weeks. But I did witness some horrible things. Yeah, and you detail them in the book. And, and there's this kind of feeling of there's an unfurling as you discover more and you see more and you realize that the men who have been in that place with you have been in there for so long and have no, you know, it's kind of that the kind of realization of the reality of what's going on behind the scenes, because it's all so secretive. There is, you know, as you said, there's no, there's no public bill of human rights. You don't know what's happening. Nothing, no guidelines, no safety. Like when I shared my story in the past, I had to, for people to understand the reality of detention, I had to explain like, you know, you don't have access to a lawyer. <laughs> you, yeah. can't, you, you can't call your parents and be like, oh, I'm here. No. Like you literally disappear and people have disappeared. You know, there are still tens of thousands of Syrians who are still in detention and no one knows if they're still alive or dead. When you came back out and your family found you and, and, and you were able to return, did part of you want to return to the life you'd led before the unrest or had you been changed so much that you couldn't go back? Well, it was really like I was released and my my, my I was very young. I was 22, 23 back then. And it's not, it's not the sort of thing that you would think that you were going to experience at such a young age. And I was released and I, um, I, 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 I didn't know what was happening. Like, there was so much happening in my head. I was obviously now, I can know that I was very traumatized, but I had no understanding of mental health back then. I didn't know what was going on. I was lost. But I, I still like, I felt like I can, you know, like this has happened. Okay, I'm just going to, open a new chapter and, and move on and go back to my life. And I wish it was as, I wish it was that simple. I wish it was that easy, <laughs> but I did like, I did, I think because I was young, I was very resilient. So I, I, I went back to work, I brushed it off and I put it in a box and I was like, I'm not going to think about it. And I tried to carry on with my life, <laughs> but it was difficult. It was difficult. There were nightmares, there were there were questions, there were times when I would wake up in the middle of the night and be like, what's going on? And there were, I was walking in a world of triggers. But I, what's more difficult is that I didn't understand what was happening. And I didn't have the language or the vocabulary to explain what was, what was going on in my head. Mm. And also, there's this constant kind of underlying fear of the secret police just coming back, which they did. And they came to your parents. And that was the point when when you had to leave, I think it's important for people to understand the context in which you would walk away from your country, because I think, you know, it's not something you ever want to do, is it? It's making the journey that you made is not something that anyone ever wants to do. It's something that you're forced to do for the safety of yourself and your family, right? There is this misconception is that young Arab men or young Muslim men from the cradle are told, oh, when you grow up, you can go to America or Europe. No, <laughs> as I explained, I was genuinely very content and I would never have left. Like I would have loved to travel and like see the world, you know, explore the world. But I never wanted to live anywhere else because we had proper weather, 
very like proper seasons. We <laughs> vegetables tasted like vegetables back home. <laughs> tomatoes tasted like tomatoes, cucumber tasted like cucumber. And um, I would never have left. And even after my first detention, my mom was like, you have to leave, you have to leave. I was like, I'm never leaving. No, like I don't want to leave. I'm really happy here. I'm close to my family. I'm close to my friends. I've got everything. I've got, why would I leave? But then when I got detained again, basically, I got arrested again. It was even worse than the first time. I got thrown in solitary confinement and I, I, oh, it was yeah. horrible. Um, and I, <laughs> I got released um, after two weeks, but I encountered some horrible things. And, yeah. um, and that's when I was like, I'm going to go. I've got to go. I've got to go. <laughs> I can't stay go. here. <laughs> I mean, looking back at your, at, at this journey, I mean, there's been so many huge changes, seismic changes that you've made, geographical, psychological uh, changes to the people around you, everything. But, you know, and I know this is a difficult question to answer, but what would you say is, is, is the biggest change that you've made as an adult, Hassan? Well, I feel like changes were forced upon me. I didn't choose i had no i had no agency in all of that <laughs> which is very annoying <laughs> i didn't have any choices so being imprisoned and seeing the worst of human witnessing the worst of humanity and then uh, leaving syria and embarking on this journey and coming here and uh, witnessing the best of humanity did change my life indefinitely there were so many times when i I was very close to giving up and not wanting to carry on. And, but I did meet some incredible people along the way. And I, uh, it gave me hope and it, it kept me going and it changed me. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So tell me about why you decided to make the journey to Europe, please. I decided to make the journey to Europe is because when I left Syria, I didn't, it wasn't a decision that I made straight away after leaving Syria. I lived in Lebanon, I lived in Dubai, but I couldn't settle. 
none of the countries where I stayed after Syria, which were in the region, I felt like I can become like I can I can settle down here. I can I can live here indefinitely. It can become my home. The idea of home in general is a place where you can stay without an expiry date on your ID card, is a place where you can stay and build a new community, meet new friends and, you know, settle down. You're not scared that you might get chucked out at every minute. So and then in 2015, when the refugee crisis was at its peak in Europe, I was in Turkey back then and my, my cousin was there, my best friend was there and it just seemed... Like I looked it up, I did my research. I was like, I if we if I go and I, if I apply for asylum and if I, you know, if I become an or if I am a law-abiding citizen and if I don't break any laws and I'll be fine. You know, I can settle down, I can get my residency, and then eventually I can get citizenship and not be worried about having to travel again and find somewhere else to live. And that's a very important thing because having lost my original home, like I can't go back to Damascus ever. You know, I can't ever go back. So I needed somewhere else. I needed another passport. I needed I needed a new chance in life. But the decision then was made. It was like, where do we go? Because most people were going to Germany or Sweden. And then I was like, maybe we should try to England. We should try to the UK. I was 26, 27. And I wanted somewhere where I, it will be easy to, to start over. It will be easier to start over. It will, the fact that I could speak the language was like, ah, that will be easier to integrate. That will be easier to get a job. That will be easier to make new friends. And we set up for Britain and embarked on an 87, 89 days, I think, journey through like 10 different countries to get here. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, it's just, again, the way that you write it, it's, it's just so fascinating to hear what you go through and I'm so I'm so, I thought I knew about it and I'm so naive I'm so, this is what I realized reading your book is how naive I am about the realities of doing what you did just to to kind of zoom in on one moment that I found was really profound was the moment where you're on the dinghy at last you get to this point where you're like scared out of your wits being pulled through forests late at night these are men you've paid obscene amounts of money to to get you across the water and then you're in the dinghy and you look around and you see that everyone is Syrian. Mm -hmm. uh, I just found that, oh. That was a surreal moment. That was, and because and, and, I met people from cities in Syria which I've never visited before and uh, from every walks of life in, back home yeah. and different ages and different professions and I could see them around. I think we were around 62 or 63 people in that dinghy. And I saw them around and I saw their faces. I could, and I like to observe. Wherever I am, I like to see what's going on. I like to try to... Re this is an unusual... Like, I never expected that this would happen to me growing up, you know? But when I, when I suddenly found myself in that moment, I was like, shit. Like, it's very... It's, it's not ideal. It's, it's, it's horrible. And to see these faces, to see these people who have been let down by the international community and, like, whose country is, like, going through the worst conflict in modern history, and they're there, like, you know, heading towards the, the, the unknown. And then the boat sank, and that was even worse. You know, like, people sold their belongings, they sold their lands to be able to, to, be able to afford these journeys. And then, and then the boat sank. It's just the worst thing that could ever happen. Yeah. You're so, uh, there's this kind of helplessness. Again, this lack of agency. You spend so much money. You, you know, all the way through, you are the kind of 
you're kind of a natural leader in a way. So you're kind of gathering the money. You're the person who's contacting the smugglers and you're crossing the money and, and you're kind of dealing with them. And then you get there and you realize that you have no power over the fact that they have just fucked you over, all of you, like with impunity, just giving you a shit boat, no one on the boat. The, again, I was so naive. Part of me was like, well, you've paid your money. It's like, <laughs> well, and you realize there's no one to, there's no one to, there's no one. There, there. And then you're on the sea and you get these, like, it's like something out of a horror film, these boats coming out of nowhere. Can you talk me through the, the, what happened there, that aspect? Because that, that, again, that was, I was so shocked by that, naively shocked by that. Well, first crossing didn't happen. So we got, we got sent back to Izmir. And then we tried the next day. And the crossing was incredible. It was like everything was going very well. The sea was flat. It was like I could see the I could see Lesbos from, from a distance. I could see the How long like, how long should the crossing be, Hassan? Sorry it should be three to four hours. It's not it's not that okay. far. Yeah. And you have your Google Maps on your phone. And I you have can my see Google Maps. Right yeah. 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 I'm I'm yeah. looking at that blue dot and I was like, everything's fine and, and everyone is praying and and then out of nowhere comes this military boat this military style boat and they start ramming our boat like literally they were ramming our boat and we it was like two in the morning we couldn't see them and they were projecting their lights on our boat and I was like what the hell is going on and so in the midst of the commotion everyone starts shouting police police to fend these people off because initially we thought they were like a, a mafia or something you know we people okay. had loads of like people had belongings so they could rob us and leave and then <laughs> the only weapons we had on us were our infl- our rings are our, our inflatable. So we started, th- rings, yeah, yeah, we started throwing them at them. And then we started throwing punches. They left and then they came back. They started beating everyone up with sticks. There were three men. And then they stole the fuel tank. They took the fuel tank and then left. And I was like, I genuinely can't understand what's happening. It's so surreal. And they were wearing balaclavas? They were wearing, no, they were wearing these masks and I remember they had these skeleton masks, you know, and, and, oh my God. and, and that's, that's, that's what I was like. There's no way, like, there are definitely some dodgy people because what, why else would they cover their faces, you know? To my, like, I was incredibly shocked an hour or two hours later because they left us adrift in the water and we couldn't, like, the waves were pushing us towards Greece. They came back to us. But then when I realized that this boat was coming from a, a Greek marine ship, you know, from a Greek like a border control ship. So we were literally being beaten up by European police in the, in the middle of the water, which is like against international law. It's, it's, it's a crime, which is still happening until this present day. But it was such a letdown for me because that was my first encounter with Europe. You know, I did not expect that I would go to Europe and I would be beaten up by the police. This is something that I was like, it's what the Syrian police would do, not European police. Europe, the, the cradle of civil like you know human rights and 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 freedoms and but it's it was like it took us seven hours of them coming pushing us back to turkey and then us swimming and pushing the boat literally we ran out of fresh water they would come and push us back and we were very stubborn we kept pushing the boat for and then they came back and uh, we had this plan i was like everyone jumps out of the boat in different places they took out their pistols and they pointed them at us imagine it got to that it got that far. They're doing that to a group of people fleeing war. And, and all sorts of people, old people, children, all sorts Lit- of people. Women, children, all sorts of people yelling at us in Greek. We couldn't understand what was happening. And then uh, we became so annoying until they gave up. I started <laughs> yelling at them. I was like, if you genuinely think you can shoot people, 
be my guest start with me because at that point I was like I'm I'm just too tired I can't yeah, deal with gone, it <laughs> gone, gone. Um, yeah they left us then they just uh, they they left us and were gone and then another like coast guard vessel came and picked us up and took us to Greece and the same guys were on it no the same guys came on that so we were transported to that main ship they came on board and they started looking for the guy who was throwing punches at them initially pulled him up slapped him on the face and I was like oh my god I wish they could. like I was trying to hide my face I, don't, I didn't want them yeah. to see me but <laughs> like can you imagine that was the first encounter like it's <laughs> and the irony of everyone in the boat yelling police as yep. in kind of like help us yeah but, the but there were the police who were, who were doing it like it, like it's so it's so shocking and it's so shocking. Well, what's shocking is that it still it still happens till, till this it's day still happening still happening yeah. to this day P- pushbacks happening. are still happening in the Aegean, on every border in Europe, and uh, nothing has changed, unfortunately. So you make it to Calais, the notorious Calais jungle, which is what people called it, and there's this feeling of kind of desperation that you kind of get from the people around you, and I wondered about your relationship with hope then, because it really felt like that was a point that was when you were at your most tired, most exhausted, most disillusioned, how did you manage to maintain hope? I think my dad really helped me on that front. (laughs) There were long 60 days in in Calais that we spent there. The conditions were horrible. We slept in parks. We slept in bus stops. We slept on the doorsteps of a church. We we cramped in a flat. We were exhausted physically and mentally because every day is like 12 or 14 hours of trying to jump over fences and get on the, on the freight train or trying to hide in a lorry. Tried 40 or 50 lorries, weren't successful. And it just wears you down and you're, you start questioning everything and you're like, is this even worth it? Like, why, why even bother? Or like, you be, I, I think I became so bitter back there, so upset with everything. Well, I was 26 you know, my people my age are what like they they're they're not hiding in lorries. <laughs> and um, I would speak to my dad, and he would be like, "Oh, just maybe go somewhere else." And I was like, "No, I want to go to the UK." And 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 he, my dad is very religious, and he would like help me, you know, navigate that. And he would like pray for me, and it was soothing. You know, it reminded me of the time when I was around my family, and we could do that to one right. another. And the difficult parts, again, I, t- I told you, I, I come from a sheltered life, my background, like my, my upbringing. But then when you suddenly find yourself in a queue for, to, to, for, for food or like in a queue to get to the toilet and you're being ha- like you're living on donations and you're living on, on, on handouts, while it's very, very nice and it's amazing, but it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to, 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 to come to terms with that, especially if you're yeah. stateless, especially if you don't have a home to go back to. But I also met some fascinating people there who like did help me, you know, who like gave me clothes, who gave me (laughs) food, who like took me out to a restaurant or like bought me a pint. And it was nice. It kept me going. And and then, yeah, 60 days later, I I made it. (laughs) So tell me how it felt to land in the UK and to be able to walk off that plane. (laughs) It was... Gosh, it's so like it was the twenty seventh of September two thousand fifteen, and it was um, it was a special day. It was a very special day because I finished. Like I've done, like I've done it. You know, I hit the finish line. Um, I felt like I was genuinely very happy. I was like, 
this is it. I made it. I could understand the signs for it because <laughs> everything was in English, especially at Heathrow. And we're like, if you want to claim asylum, you go there. So I could read those signs. I was like, wow, like this feels very normal. And then I went through the process of claiming asylum and, uh, and through the interviews and everything. And I, it wasn't that long for me. It took me six months to being granted leave to remain. But little did I know back then is that while I finished that journey, you embark on a whole new journey when you get to your destination. Because people think, okay, I got there and I'm going I'm to be sorted. It's, everything is fine. Everything is... But it's not. <laughs> it's, it's, it is difficult. <laughs> yeah. How long have you been here now, Hassan? Six years. Initially, you know, you talk in the book about going around and kind of going to a kebab shop and kind of discovering this kind of the culture, the, the, the dialogue, the, the England in your head versus the England that is real in real life. How was that? It was very difficult. I mean, while I'm grateful to be here, while like, I, you know, I can have a bank account, I can have a, a, a passport, I can, I, can, I can travel, I can do a lot of things which people can't do, but still a life in exile, away from my roots, away from my family, and it gets lonely sometimes. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a line in the book that says, I really like it here, but so much has been lost. Yeah. So it's that kind of, that kind of realization. That yeah. It's, you know, yeah, yeah. Home, um, home is the place that you left behind. And can this ever be home, do you think, for someone in exile? I don't have another option. <laughs> yeah, so maybe in time. Maybe in time, yes. Maybe time. I just want to, I mean, I think I've established myself here. Luckily, like I have made friends. Luckily, I, I, I have a career. But I want also have access to my family. I want, be able to go, I want to be able to go and see them. I, I still don't have that. England is not what I expected it would be. Because when, you're, <laughs> when I was living in Syria, what do I know of England? Other than like Top Gear and BBC and just films. And like you don't, you don't really get to know the country until you get here. And it's not, it's not easy here, especially London. I live in London. London is very competitive. Everyone is in a rush, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's really hard to keep up. <laughs> but I, it will be home. I am, I, 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 have, I am hopeful that it will be home. There's a bit in the book where you describe sitting in front of people and telling your story for the first time and just how powerful that is for you in a positive and negative way. I wondered, first of all, how people have reacted to your story since you've got here. The reaction was incredible. Like I, the people I traveled with, they made a conscious decision to move on with their lives and they got their jobs and I mean, good on them. I took a different route, which has its positives and negatives. So I took a route of, of, of sharing my story, of keep talking about the issue, keep talking about Syria, about the refugee crisis, because it's ongoing. It hasn't stopped yet. And um, of course, that affected me. I can see that it was positive. It's, it was a positive thing to do. And I, the first time I did it, it was in a pub in Stroud, which I wrote about in the book. And I shared my story for the first time and I could see like the effects, you know, like it's one thing to read an article about the crisis or to watch a film. And another is when you have a person in front of you telling you how it was, you know, sharing details with you. And I especially, like I have, the, I am a storyteller. I, I was a teacher. I, I used to tell stories for a living. So I, I have 
I can do it. I can utilize my, my story, my journey to educate people, to help them understand this really massive crisis and put a face on it. On the downside is that it, it does affect me. You know, I, mm. I, I, of course, I could it not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I hope I'm hoping with this book is that, you know, like I've, 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 I've shared my story many times now, but now with the book, it was the only time where I felt like, okay, I am the author of my own story. I'm going to be very honest. I'm going to share all the details and I'm going to put it out there. I'm very anxious, <laughs> but what I want out of it is I, I hope it helps people understand or like learn one thing or another. And if it could inspire them, that would be great too. I think it, there's never been a better time for this book to exist and never been a more important time for this book to exist in Britain today. Um, another thing that you detail in the book is when you, when you get here and you think, right, I'm here, I'm safe, I've got my leave to remain, I've got everything I need to, to feel safe. And then a global pandemic happens and suddenly <laughs> it's like, it's nearly funny. It's nearly funny because it, it, it's like suddenly all those old feelings that you have of danger and the sense of danger and your kind of, your instinct for it just straight back up. But you, you have to do something. And this, I mean, it, to me, it's so telling about who you are as a person that you had to just jump right in the middle of it, into the danger zone and do something. Yeah. I was so naive. I was like, I'm in Britain now. I'm safe. Like, what could happen here? <laughs> I'm away from all the danger. I can still, like, talk about it. I can still raise awareness and raise money and, like, help. But I'm safe now. And then, as you said, the global pandemic happens. And it makes me, like, I lost my mind, literally. It was sad. It was disappointing. I was like, not again. Like, so far, I have gone through war and detention and exile. And I'm 33. Like, I don't want a pandemic to happen. Give me a break give me, already. Give me, Just yeah. give me a break. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I nearly lost my mind. And I was like, oh, my God, what do I do? What do I do? And I, I wanted to do something. Like, otherwise, I, was, I would have genuinely lost my mind. I was, I was at home. I was like, the world is going to end and I have to do something. And I started looking into ways to help, working on a farm or delivery. And I worked, worked in delivery. And then I was like, oh, like, are there any like, NHS jobs I can do? And then I found <laughs> an, uh, a job post for a cleaner. They desperately were looking for cleaners at hospitals because they wanted the hospitals to, to be disinfected all the time. And I took the job. <laughs> I took a job as a cleaner at uh, Whips Cross Hospital in East London. What did that experience teach you about people? Oh, my God. <sighs> wow. Like, it, well, it taught me a lot. At first, like, it, taught me, it taught me a lot about resilience, to be honest. Because the people that I worked with, the fact that they could they leave their families behind at home, go to work, to a COVID-19 ward and work for very, very long hours back then. They were everyone doing long, long shifts and being exp like, and the level of uncertainty. And back then people didn't know what, 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 what this virus was. And the level of fear and uncertainty and risk, the risk of catching the virus themselves, contracting COVID. So doing that and then going, so doing all of that and then going back to their families, I was like, there are some really good people out there. 
again, as I told you before, I like to observe. I like to see what's what's happening around me. I was in awe, genuinely in awe of how like the NHS staff, like how great they are. And I wish they could just be treated properly and paid properly because the extent of what they've done during the pandemic is just, it's really hard to describe. And I was genuinely very honored to be able to work with them and witness it for, for like nine weeks. And not just witness it, but show the world it, which you did in, in your way by taking these beautiful photographs and, and also putting your kind of rawest feelings on video about these people and changing policy. <laughs> yeah, casually changing policy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, a week a week down the line in that in that ward, it's called Birch Ward. I was like, oh my god, there is a story here because everyone I was we everyone I was working with was not from Britain. You know, they, they, yeah. they, they, we were yeah. all immigrants and refugees. I was like, there is there's definitely a story here, and I need to document it somehow. So I was doing my nine-hour shift, eight, nine-hour shift of cleaning, but also, like, I asked the hospital, I was like, can I photograph and film my, my colleagues? Like, I, I really want to share their stories. They're such incredible people. They were mm. like, yeah, of course, please do it. So I started taking pictures of them and, 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 and filming them and, and, like, posting these pictures online and sharing their stories with their permissions. And yeah. they, they got a lot of, like, it, it just, they, people loved them, you know? They could see... Mm. Who are those people on the front line who are like very normal people who are who happen to be working in hospitals? And I wanted to I wanted the people to learn to know about them. And then like four or five weeks later, the government announces a bereavement scheme. And they say, well, if you are an immigrant who is working on the front line and if you die, your partner and your family get indefinitely to remain. But then they excluded hospital cleaners, hospital porters, and ward hosts. And mind you, like, who are are all, like, literally, like, Mm. like, all immigrants. Mm. And they are all in minimum wage. So they are the people who need it the most. And when I, I remember walking to the hospital and reading that in the Independent and reading the article, I was like, what? Like, it's whoever came up with this policy, have they ever been to a hospital in England? It was so bonkers that I, I was like, I was like, I've got to do something about it. What can I do? I was like genuinely losing my mind. I was like, well, I've got to do something. And, and you know what? I'm a filmmaker. And I believe in the power of stories. And I believe in the power of the moving image. And I don't mind putting myself out there. I've done it before. And I'm just going to record a message to Boris Johnson and put it on Twitter. So I did. <laughs> I, I, I went to my car. I recorded that message. And I put it on Twitter. And I was... And when I do these things, Annie, is they're not... Like, I'm literally shaking because it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to put yourself no. out there. And, no, and, I watched it. It, yeah. didn't, it didn't look like it. Yeah, it was raw. Yeah. yeah. So I put it out and went back to the ward and then finished my shift, went back. I was trending on Twitter. And uh, within three or four hours, the video has got like five million views. And then three hours later, they announced a U-turn and they included everyone in the bereavement scheme. I mean, yeah. just just imagine like just being in that room and someone being like, "Oh, guys, um, we just did that, and now everyone's at, oh, just just flip it, just flip it." And that's all it is. That's just someone going, "Oh yeah, just just flip it." And it's it, it's terrifying. It is terrifying, and it's. That, I mean, it's, it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be that someone has to do a video so the government can reconsider something. 
it should it shouldn't be the case, you know, and it's happened a lot. But but coming from where you've come from, there must have been an incredible feeling of actually being able to make change. You know, nothing like that is guaranteed, even in the UK. But when you live in a democratic society where the government has to listen, whereas in Syria, that that just doesn't exist. Yes, I think it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. Not I think. I'm sure it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm genuinely very proud. Not for anything. Literally not for anything. But I know because I know that tens of thousands of people were protected because of that policy change. And it gives me like I, I feel so honored that I played a small role in making that happen. And also the feeling that I couldn't do any change back home. Like I, I really tried and I almost died trying to, to, to do any sort of change. But then when I came here and I, I, I was able to do that, I was like, great. <laughs> it, it really, like, it, it helped with my self-esteem. It helped with my confidence. I was like, I can do something. Hassan, where does, where does th- this kind of inherent need to do, where does it come from? I think because I was offered, I was offered chances in life many times. And I, I nearly died few times. So the fact that I've been given another chance in life, I feel like I want to pass it over. I feel like I want to do something because I, I was given another chance. I think that's where it comes from. On a personal level for yourself, what would you still like to change? My life here on a personal level, I would really like to have a place that I can call mine, like a, a little flat, because I haven't had that in a long time. I'm always moving around. I'm currently staying with a friend until I find somewhere to rent. And this has been my life, just always living out of boxes and stuff. So I would really like to have like a place where I can put my pictures up, like my prints out, I can put my books out, I can cook, I can like do my thing. And I would really love to be able to see my parents anytime I want, to have some sort of agency of having access to my family. And... Uh, Yeah, I just want to live a normal life. (laughs) I don't, I mean, I hope there are no more pandemics or wars because I really want to, I want things to be easy. (laughs) You said you can never go back to Damascus. What's the situation with your family home there, uh, with that flat? It's still there. Um, It's still there? Still there. Is anyone in it? No. But everyone, everyone is safe in your family? Yeah, luckily, yeah. My parents are, and my sisters are in the UAE. My brother is in Iraq. And we are planning, we're hoping, um, you know, in, in February, I'll be eligible to apply for citizenship. And fingers crossed, if I, got, if I get it, I'm really like, I hope I can get it. I will be able to go and visit them wherever they are, because, you know, having a British passport changes everything. Hassan, thank you so much for your story today and for sharing everything. Um, I don't think you need any luck for this because I think I think it's going to be a huge, huge success. Um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, and the, now the nice thing is you can be like, if anyone says, well, tell me about your life, you can just say, well, read the book, guys, because it's all there. <laughs> My huge thanks to Hassan for sharing his story with us this week. He uh, has gone through such huge change and upheaval in his life. And one of the things that struck me after the conversation was this constant reinforcement of how little agency he had all the way through his huge ordeal of getting to the UK, which makes that act of actually changing government policy here in the UK so marvellous. And it must have felt just so empowering for him. 
Around the world, there are nearly 26.4 million refugees. Here in the UK, at the end of 2020, there were roughly 132,000, 77,000 of them pending asylum. This year alone, an estimated 1,369 people have died trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea to Europe. Of course, each one of those lives has a story attached to it, just like Hassan's. Please pass this story on to someone in your life who you think should hear it, who you think could really benefit from it, and get in touch to tell me what you thought, of course. It's always such a pleasure to hear your reactions. Last week's episode with Yeba had a huge reaction from you. I'm so glad you felt the emotions of the conversation as much as I did. Alexis Gay said, I'm literally crying listening to this. Yeba is a queen and such a beautiful soul with a gorgeous gift. Next week on Changes, one of those characters who you think you probably know really well. But how much do you really know about Jimmy Carr? I could not believe how much I didn't know about Jimmy Carr before the conversation I had with him for Changes, which you're going to hear next week. Can't wait for that. This show is produced by Frank Palmer. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.